The dawn is overcast, the morning lowers, and heavily in clouds brings on the day, the great, the important day, big with the fate of Cato and of Rome. Porteus, Cato, Act One, Scene One I often cannot recall recent events, and yet I do recall that week almost sixty years ago, and I remember it more vividly than any time in the eight years I served the general. You may wonder at my ability to write today in the early 1840s about events so long ago, but as I write now, I realize that outside of the important times recorded on the flyleaf of our family Bible, there is no period I remember better. Of course, I can't be sure of all the details of the nascent mutiny that almost changed our country forever. While I kept copies of much of the general's correspondence and many of my notes, perhaps I've got some of the names or the exact sequence of events wrong. I hope my great-grandchildren will excuse me for that, just as I also hope they will excuse me for recalling so many of my random thoughts that week. But February 22nd, the general's birthday, is a month from now. Their school has already started its annual study of the general's life, and they want to come over and ask questions about him. It seems their schoolteacher believes the general had plenty of flaws. He did, but I probably know them better than anyone else, and I believe I can explain them better than any schoolteacher who wasn't there. That brings me back to Monday, March 10th, 1783, in Newburgh, New York and the extraordinary events that followed over the next several days. I just don't understand why everyone writes about what was right and wrong about his generalship and presidency, and you never hear about that week. Perhaps it's partly because of the way history is taught in our schools now. My great-grandchildren tell me the War for Independence ended with the surrender at Yorktown in 1781. No one teaches them that the Revolutionary War went on for almost two more years after Yorktown, albeit with very limited fighting, until a peace treaty was signed. We rarely talk about the conflicts during those two years and the consequences for our country, but the greatest conflict then, I believe, was within the heart and mind of our commanding general. You are probably wondering how I happened to be there. I still puzzle about how I became chief aide to the general. We had met back in 1775, when the Second Continental Congress was meeting in Philadelphia. Joseph Reed, who the general retained after his appointment as commanding general, had introduced us. My qualifications, I thought, were slim. No military experience, but a year at Princeton, despite my parents' misgivings, some experience apprenticed to an uncle in the family's Philadelphia merchant business, and a knowledge of French. He asked whether I liked to write, and did I write well. I didn't realize at the time, but the general wanted an aide who was a good writer and could correct his own writing. He was very diffident about having had only one year of formal schooling. He also wanted an aide who could communicate with the French, already looking on them as potential allies. The general didn't ask about my family— but he must have known that, unlike me, many of them were practicing Quakers who opposed the war for religious reasons, although I must admit their strong commercial links to Britain may have played a role. 
Back then, almost every well-off family in Philadelphia had divided loyalties. Animosity increased during the war, leading to tarring, feathering, and worse atrocities that Americans now don't like to talk about. But back when the war started, at least in Philadelphia, nobody cared much if you had relatives on the side of the king. When we arrived later in Boston, the general retained Edmund Randolph as an aide. His father was a well-known loyalist, but this did not bother the general. When the general offered me the position, I quickly said yes. Perhaps too quickly. I thought only of the glory and romance that would accompany my position and impress the women I was wooing, especially Priscilla, the woman I would later marry. I thought little, at least until that evening, of my fear of physical danger and the battlefield. I wish I could say it was noble Quaker conscientious objection to war that gave me second thoughts, but I don't think this fear had much to do with my religious upbringing.